In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. Evening, morning, and noon. I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Glory Glory be to to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. As we look ahead to the Sunday that is coming, uh, we are ending our time in Colossians. We get this last reading out of Colossians. And then looking ahead into August, we begin by moving into the book of Hebrews. Also this Sunday, we've got a nice transition happening as uh, we welcome our new vicar, Jordan DeBoer. He'll be installed on Sunday morning uh, at all the services, and he will be joining us then for the next year. And so next week during the podcast, we'll have a moment set aside to introduce him and uh, let all of you hear a little bit about him as he prepares to enter into the cycle of uh, leading the Bible studies, preparing for the week that is to come. But as we look at the book of Colossians, we are in Colossians chapter 3, and we've talked quite extensively about how in the summer months we read in a continuous lectionary or Lectio Continuo system where we read one passage after another out of Paul's epistles. Sometimes, however, even as we're doing that, it ends up aligning incredibly well with the larger theme for the day. And this upcoming week's theme is the issue of coveting and hoarding earthly goods. And the Colossians readings fits into that remarkably well, thinking about the selfishness of humanity and how the entrance of Christ into the world and then through baptism into the lives of the Christian slowly starts to change that outlook from being inward to outward and then also changes the relationship we have with the material goods of this world. So we'll keep that in the background of our mind as we read through our Colossians text today. And so, Paul, could you begin with Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Thank you. So we're going to do a little bit of an exercise, Paul. If somebody comes up to you and says, who are you? How would you answer them? I would probably say, first, a child of God. I mean, you, you, that should be my response. Right. Uh, yeah, so you kind of, you've heard me <laughs> well, yeah, use this yeah, shtick before. Yeah. But you're meeting something, somebody new, you're sitting on a plane. They say, so who are you? How, do you? how would you respond? I would probably tell them first where I'm from, mm-hmm. if you're traveling in, right. in, in that yeah. context. And then probably, your name, probably. Yeah, your, my name, um, and then what I do for a, for a vocation. Okay. Now, are you generally upfront about what you do for a vocation, or do you kind of skirt around it as, I'm, I'm a musician? No, I, I would say I would, I would introduce myself as I'm a church musician. If they want to explore that some more, I'm always grateful to tell them more. Okay. Because that gives me the opening to tell them, okay, in what, what corner of the church do, right. do you work? Right. And are you a, what kind of church musician are you? 
not just where. But well, that is that is true. So then they can decide which how they want to explore that right. further. It's interesting when you ask that question of pastors. Some pastors are very upfront about what they do. Others will try and kind of skirt the question because when you say I'm a pastor, that often elicits a very strong response of either you're going to be ignored entirely or you're going to spend the rest of your flight having to answer a whole lot of questions. And so sometimes pastors will kind of skirt around it to try and get to know a person a little bit better before they do that, uh, before they get into this is what I actually do for a living. So without being disingenuous, what, well, do, you, you, what do you start with? What do you start with? Because um, I've done both. It, it, honestly, it depends on how tired I am. Um, so I've answered both ways. And if I'm going to kind of skirt it, I'll say something like, um, I'll, I'll kind of direct the conversation so they never get the chance to ask. I'll have asked them and start asking them questions and we'll be into the conversation further than if I just say, well, hi, my name is, yeah. and I do. I'll start by questioning them more than doing the upfront introductions myself. I won't ever lie and say, well, well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so it's just how do you frame that question? And the reason we start that way is because this section moves us into a question of identity. And because Paul's heard me uh, talk about this more than once, he knows that the correct answer I'm looking for is starting by saying, hi, my name is Josh and I'm a baptized Christian. Well, why would I say that that's the way that you want to start? When we think about our identity, most of the time, and you can test this and, and let me know if, if you find something different, if you talk to a man, they'll give you their name and then their profession. You talk to a woman, they'll often give you their name and then some kind of family status, how many children they have or how many grandchildren they have. It's just the way we speak uh, and, and talk about ourselves. But that secondary thing that we say after our name becomes the identity through which everything else flows. And so when we talk about, well, I'm a pastor, well, everything else, if that's my secondary identity, everything else about my life and the way that somebody's going to see me happens through that lens. And there's already a whole list of assumptions about the way that I live all of those other parts of my life. But what would happen if as Christians we always gave that secondary identity after our names? And when I say secondary, it's that second statement that you're making, or making not um, secondaries and less important. But we started with, I'm a baptized Christian. Well, Paul's answering that question for us in his epistle to the Colossians. He is telling us that not only uh, does that identity make a difference, but it should be the one that we lead with. Because if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things above, not on the things on earth. For, if, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. And so he's trying to get the Colossians and us to reorient the way that we see the world. Do we see the world as a place where we can conduct our business? Do we see the world as a place where our families can have relationships and live? Or do we see the world as the way that God is caring for us, but we are always looking forward to what God has in store for us? 
Well, the way you answer that question changes the way you're going to see everything else and the way that you interact with those around you. Now, he does say that some part of that Christian life is hidden. Did you catch which part of the Christian life was hidden? No, I didn't. I, I guess I was so enamored with that, phrase, that choice of phrasing. Okay. Um, it comes to us in verse 3. Your life, uh, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when your life appears, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. And so what's hidden there is that status we have of being a resurrected Christian. So we talk about how in baptism the old Adam dies and the new is brought forth. And the Christian is always looking forward to eternal life. Well, that life is already ours. We just don't yet see it because it's hidden with Christ. But the promise is that when Christ returns, it is revealed in its full glory. And we'll see the eternal life of all of the saints who have already died brought to fruition because it will be bodily given to them as well, not just spiritually. And so when we think about your life being hidden with Christ, it's not like we hide our Christian identity but instead we recognize that the fullness of what it means to be a Christian is yet to be revealed. Even we don't know what it's fully going to look like because the resurrection has not yet occurred. And so we get that hiddenness there. But that certainly does not mean that the Christian life doesn't look different from the non-Christian life. And that's what Paul's going to get to next. Because if our minds are set on the things above, set on heaven, if our life is being lived as if it is eternal, because he promises that it is, then it should be different from what the life in the world would look like. So let's go ahead and read chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. Right, so speaking very cryptically there, in the, those first couple of verses, he, he adds this to, I think, further explain what, he, what he's getting right. at there. Right, Even though it has, as we get to the end of it, I think it has its own mysteries to it, so to speak. Right. That's, that's and, Paul trying to pat, pack in a lot and, and leaving a lot to be further on, right. unraveling. Yes, Paul likes to make sure every word counts. Yes, and so could you read that next section? Sure, this is, this is verses 5 through 11 of chapter 3. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you put, must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Thank you. So if we are living a life that is focused on the things above and anticipates the glory that will be revealed with Christ's return, there are consequences to that life. Put to death all that is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, 
which is idolatry. So at the beginning of the conversation, I said this, is, this reading fits really well with the overall theme for Sunday about coveting, and this is where that comes in. Because each of these sins, sexual immorality, is coveting a body that is not yours. Impurity is coveting those things that God has not given to you. Passion is chasing after idols that are leading you away from God. Evil desires would be anything contrary to God's word. And covetousness is looking around the world and saying, there are things that God has failed to provide for me, and I want them to be my own as well. And so all of these things lead us away from God and put our minds on earthly things. And that fits into, like I said, the, the theme for Sunday of, of coveting those things that are not ours and chasing after the material blessings of this world. And it's all wrapped up so nicely in the word earthly because it's, it's this, this world, not the spiritual realm. Right, and none of these things have any benefit in the spiritual realm. Now, we do have to be very careful here, and um, that is that we don't fall into a heresy that Paul is actually writing against in his uh, work to the Colossians, which is that the material things don't matter. Paul is not saying that the things of this world don't matter to us. They do. And to say that they don't, that is a temptation the Colossians have. We're just going to focus on the spiritual, but the body doesn't matter. And this is a form of Gnosticism, which teaches that the body and the soul are independent of each other. And all God cares about is the spirit or the soul, and the body doesn't matter. But the reality is when we see Christ come to earth, he comes body and soul together. He dies and is raised body and soul together. The body matters. The material things matter. And it's not that just the body is tempted into sin, but it's the whole self that's tempted into sin. So what those Gnostics actually believed is, is you could conduct yourself in whatever way you wanted to, in, a, in, a, in, in terms of your body, right. but that, that somewhere, that you could kind of separate those two things, that somehow you had this spirituality that, that transcended that, and, and that was what was right. really important. So you can fall off the ship in two ways with this. You can either say the body is so material and base and sinful, the spirit has to dominate it. And so you engage in um, very severe self-discipline and very rigid self-discipline practices in order to try and tame the sinful desires of the flesh. Uh, or you go the other direction and say the body doesn't matter, so it doesn't matter what you do with it. You don't need to care for it at all. Both of those are wrong. Um, Jesus tells us that fasting and other forms of physical discipline are good because it helps us control our sinful desires. But he also talks about how the body is a blessing. This is God's gift to his people. And in the final verse, we're going to talk about this a little bit more, our bodies are part of who we are and we cannot be separated from it. And this Gnostic idea of the spirit being better than the body, it is still alive and well today. All you have to do is go to a funeral and you'll encounter it. And it's the idea of, oh, your spirit has been set free from the fail your failing body, or that you've become like a butterfly and your body, your your true self has been released from its its shell. 
And all of those things run contrary to Scripture. At no point in time does Jesus ever talk this way. The promise is always the resurrection of the dead and the physical life in the new creation for all eternity. But I think that this, this corruption of the teaching in part has led to many of the challenges we're facing culturally today. The idea that I have a right to define myself independent of my physical body. Because who are you to say that this is not who I truly am and I have the right to physically change my body in whatever way I want to, to match what I believe myself to be. And scripture would over and over again say, no, that's not true because your body is how you are defined. It is who you are. And your spirit is not just dwelling inside of it, but is joined to it and is part of it. So Paul says to set all of these things aside, and why? what is the warning he gives as to why we should set them aside? Well, he says that the wrath of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. That's a lost statement if you've ever heard one. Um, I had a teacher along the way, and I think it was probably a Sunday school teacher or a vacation Bible school teacher, who I distinctly remember saying, if you ever wonder if you should be doing something, ask yourself if Jesus came back right now, would you be embarrassed that you're doing it? <laughs> and if you're embarrassed that you're doing it when Jesus returns, you probably shouldn't be doing it as you're waiting for him to return. And that's always kind of stuck with me as kind of an interesting way to evaluate, is what you're doing okay? Um, and that's Paul's warning here. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, he's not just saying, don't do these things because Jesus might see you doing them. He's saying, because God is angry that they are happening, eventually he is going to return, and he's going to carry out his judgment on the earth because of it. And so he then says, in putting this away, you also put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, because you have put off the old self with its practices, and you've put on the new self. And so this act of putting off the old self, this is the drowning of the old Adam in baptism, and it's a reminder to us that the Christian faith does change things. Because we see what Christ has done for us and we are then motivated to go and do that for one another. Now we get to the, what we had talked about here, in, uh, or alluded to here in verse 11. Here there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul is reminding us that our baptismal identity unifies us to Christ as he dwells within all believers. This unity does not destroy our personal characteristics. Instead, binds us all together, overcoming prejudice, animosity, and economic status. And so he's not saying that the differences disappear, that we are all homogenous and exactly the same. That's not what he's saying at all. He's just saying the things that divide us are what are overcome in Christ, and we are united in him. Now, occasionally, this is used to support the modern 
ecumenical movement uh, that says there is no difference either between denominations or between world religions at all. Well, right. You could you could definitely see somebody making the coexist case out right. of this passage. But that's not the case that he's getting at here. What he's saying is that there is unity in Christ and the salvation he offers. It doesn't matter if you are Greek or Jew or circumcised or uncircumcised, which would be Jewish or non-Jewish, or barbarian or Scythian or slave or free. When it comes to salvation, when it comes to how you are saved, we are all saved in exactly the same way, through the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so we cannot say that this diminishes all of the differences that exist in the world because it doesn't. It just says salvation is for all people regardless of their status here on earth. And if we were to continue in chapter 3, in verse 18, he highlights this by talking about the differences between husbands and wives. We are all one in Christ, but husbands and wives have different roles to play in the relationship, and parents have different roles than children and fathers uh, over their children and slaves to their owners and owners to their slaves. So he goes back into all of these differences and celebrates the fact that we have a role to play in caring for each other because of the differences that already exist. But at the end of the day, all of us are saved through Christ. That passage is not in my in my mind right away. Is it? Is it a parallel to the Ephesians? The it is the parallel okay, to the okay. Ephesians, but it is much more efficiently written. And so it's not one that we normally ta use when we're talking about marriage because it's, I can read it. It says, uh, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. And so he takes everything he taught to the Ephesians in um, that beautiful section in Ephesians 5 and condenses it down into two verses. So, Does that one ever get read, read at weddings? Have you used that one at weddings? Instead of from the Colossians? Instead of no. the if, if Ephesians. Okay. No. Um, normally, if we're going to read from Colossians, we're going to read the section that is in between what we've been studying and what I just read, which is verses 12 through 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against the other, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. That's the section of Colossians that will be read at a wedding. Um, and then he goes on to talk about uh, the divine service as well in that. And we don't hear that part of the reading for Sunday, but it is a good response to what Paul has just written. Put off those old things, and in its place put on these new things. Instead of being sexually immoral, impure, passionate, evil with evil desires, covetousness, angry, wrathful, malicious, slanderous, obscene from the mouth, instead of being all of those things, be this, beloved, compassionate, kind, humble, meek, patient, bearing with one another your burdens. That is what the Christian life is to look like because that reveals the life of Christ. I had one more question about the end of this, if, you, if you're... Sure. Okay. <laughs> okay, when it talks about uh, unity, unity in Christ... 
how can we um, how can we understand that in terms of the different Christian beliefs? Because we don't want to paper over all these different understandings we have of the right. Christian faith. I mean, unity is the ultimate goal. Correct. And that's a great question. So I just said that this does not refer to the modern ecumenical movement that says the differences between us well, don't matter. There, there's, there's that. There's, there's Christian and non-Christian understandings of right. faith. But I mean, just within in Christianity, I think a lot of people struggle with that just because aren't we all Christians? I mean, I, I, they, they don't understand, you know. Right. Uh, there's differences in practice, but, but you know, can't we all... Uh, worship together and can be completely ecumenical about about how we approach things. Except for the fact that 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 approach does cover over the true differences that actually exist. So what do we do with this? Well, we look at it and say, there are going to be more than Missouri Synod Lutherans in heaven. If you are under the assumption that the only people in heaven are those that belong to the LCMS, you are sorely mistaken. That's the first thing. We can rejoice in the fact that in spite of our sinful nature, God allows his word to be preached in churches of all kinds, shapes, and sizes around the world. Even those that would be heterodox in nature, meaning that they have some false teachings within them, but they are not heretical. They're not denying who Christ is or the nature of the Trinity. God's word is still being proclaimed there and salvation is still being delivered to those people. So we can look at other denominations and say that, yes, his word is there and because God's word is holy and effective, then, or then, not then, then as a result of that, people there are being saved. So then why do we get worked up or concerned about these heterodox practices or variations in practice that we would say are not appropriate or uh, even teaching that would be contrary to God's word. Well, we worry about it because, A, we don't want to let a church or a denomination slip to the point that salvation is no longer offered there, that God's word becomes so corrupted and so distorted that it's no longer effective in that place because it's denied the reality of who Christ is. And this does happen. Um, you and I both read a, a news article that, or a news magazine that keeps track of, of churches across the country. And in the most recent edition, it reported a church in California that has on its staff a witch to help people understand their relationship with the natural world and to understand their astrological sign. Well, that congregation is still, still calls itself Christian, but they've drifted so far that people there are outside of salvation because they're placing their faith in something totally different. We should be worried about that. So first of all, it's we worry about the salvation of others who are in places where God's word is not taught in its purity but is taught in some corrupted way. And second of all, we should love our neighbor enough that we want the best for them. So think about this in terms of, of physical health. 
If you know that you have a neighbor who can only afford to eat ramen noodles most days of the week, that their budget is so tight that three or four days a week, the only food that is served in that house is ramen noodles at 25 cents a pack. I would hope you would look at that and say, that's not healthy. Is there ways that I can help them get better nutrition into their diet so that they can have a healthier physical life? And if we would be concerned about that physical being, should we not also be concerned about their spiritual well-being? Saying, well, we don't want to say, well, at least they're eating something that's good enough. No, we should want them to have the fullness of what God has prepared for his people. His word in its purity and truth, his sacraments delivered to them so that they can be certain of their salvation as well. And so we don't want to ignore the differences that exist there. We can acknowledge that people are being saved in, in all denom most denominations or all denominations. Um, but we don't want to just settle and say, well, that's, that's good enough. They don't need to worry about it. No, we want to help them improve and show them that there is something better waiting for them. Uh, having said that, um, unity is still, it's still a worthy goal. And I suppose we could, right. we could, we could go off on a very long and extended uh, uh, tangent and musing about what the importance of uh, ecumenism or you know, mm -hmm. working together is. Right. But I mean, the, uh, the, the, way, yeah, the way you phrase it is, you wouldn't turn a blind eye to what you think is maybe harmful for them in their physical health or their spiritual health. Right. So the important thing is, is that we're actually dialoguing right. with, these, with these people, sorting through these issues. Um, you, could, you could promote that kind of discussion, say, yeah, unity is an, is an important goal, but it's also kind of a refinement of the, the, the Christian faith, the global Christian faith. Right. Yeah, absolutely, unity would be the goal because we confess the one holy Christian and apostolic church. It is a great travesty that denominations exist at all because it means that there is disruption in the pure teaching of God. We uh, do not want discord within the Christian church. Unity should absolutely be the goal. The problem is that we can't have false unity, and that's what a lot of people confuse is false unity with true unity, and false unity says the differences don't matter, but ultimately they do. So as we think about the issue of coveting and our um, thinking about what it means to be Christian in this world while we wait for the full uh, glory to be revealed with Christ's second coming, what hymn did you uh, pick for this week that tries to capture all of those themes and hold it all together? Well, there's, there's a number of hymns that kind of speak to the issue of, you know, uh, worldly possessions and, and, and things like that. But the one that always comes to mind to me is number 730, which is what is the world to me? Because it kind of, it, it asks the rhetorical question, well, what is it? Well, it's actually nothing, right? If, if, we're, if we're rooted in Christ, it's actually nothing. The world means nothing to us. So it, it kind of speaks to us on two different levels. It speaks to our epistle reading that, that um, the earthly things, the um, earthly covetousness is, is really not where we are, we are grounded, that all the more important things that are valuable are in Christ, what we find in Christ. But it also speaks to the other two readings that we have for this week, just in a, a material sense that 
that in a material sense, we don't, um, those aren't our treasure. Right. Yes. And I guess we should, <clears throat> we've referenced it a lot. The other two readings for this week, uh, the Old Testament is Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, everything is vanity. And the gospel reading is uh, Jesus telling the parable of uh, the man who builds the barns because his, he has a bumper crop. And he says, soul, what should I do with all the stuff? Well, tear down your barns and build new ones, and the next day he dies. Uh, and so that's the Big, overarching bigger, thing. Bigger barns. Yeah, build yeah, bigger barns, yeah. yes. So those are the stories that are bracketing this epistle, and, and this is why we're talking about it in terms of covetousness and things of the world. And so uh, this hymn fits nicely in with that. Uh, it's in the trust section of the hymnal. Again, it's, it's number 730, What is the World to Me? Um, What's interesting about this one, we'll, we'll talk about the author and the, uh, the, not so much the author and the composer, because in this particular case, the author is in some doubt. Um, it's listed in the hymnal as being authored by, by Georg Michael Pfefferkorn. Uh, it's also thought it could also be Balthazar Kindemann. Nobody knows for sure, so we're not really gonna dwell on that too much since it's, it's, it's in doubt. And the composer is also somewhat in doubt um, Asveris Fritsch. Uh, the reason he's assigned as the composer is because this, this hymn, its first appearance, was in a collection of hymns that he edited. And none of the composers were designated in that particular collection. No known source. He may have written it himself. Oh, to be and, alive before copyright laws. Yeah, and that was, <laughs> that was often the case, that, that maybe somebody gathered together this, this bunch of hymns. It just wasn't, it wasn't on their minds, like, well, mm. for posterity, I better know carefully who who wrote this. Right. Um, I like I like the hymn. I'll put it in the collection. Right. Let somebody else worry about it. Figure about it. It's it's not of consequence. And they certainly weren't paying royalties. Right. Right. So it wasn't it wasn't an issue of consequence. So there's many cases of that where where um, the editor is just assigned the authorship because nobody knows where it came from. So we're not going to focus on that for today because we know neither the, for sure, the, the author or the composer of, of the text or of the music. Um, rather, I think what's more interesting is the translator of the text, who is uh, August Kroll. And um, he really figures nicely into the history of the Missouri Synod because he was born in Germany. He came over to this country and he went to the, to the boarding school, which was at Fort Wayne at the time. Well, at first he settled in the St. Louis area, and then he was sent to the boarding school that was at Fort Wayne when it was first established there. Came back to St. Louis, to the seminary, became a pastor, served uh, some parishes in the Milwaukee area for a while, but then the bulk of his career was spent back in Fort, Fort Wayne teaching German. He was a German professor okay. there. And, and um, not only just a professor, but he also wrote uh, textbooks to teach German there. So uh, I'm sure it was an obvious choice uh, for some of our early synod officials, like, oh, we need a guy to help us transition from a, being a German-speaking and singing church body into an English-speaking one, that he would be right. certainly involved in that process. Well, and he was probably many of their teachers. 
Oh, that, that, that true, yeah. Oh yeah, I remember Professor Kroll. Yeah, let's right. ask him to, to help us out with this. So indeed, that was the role that, that he filled, was he was the, the first significant um, uh, editor uh, of the English hymnals that we were used in our synod in the, in the beginning of the 20th century. And so to clarify, he was a German who learned English and then taught German not somebody who spoke English and learned German and taught it. Correct, correct. Yeah, so he, he was very, very facile with the German, the original language, and, and, and obviously very good in English as well, that he could uh, poetically render a lot of these texts right. in, in English. Um, and, that, and that's always the challenge when you translate from one language to the other. Is sometimes the poetry is lost, Sometimes the theology is lost, which is always a danger, which is always it's very good that he was also a pastor mm -hmm. and a, uh, a linguist, that he could translate those things and we didn't lose a lot of the theology. One of the things that surprises me when I look at this is even though we don't know who the composer is, that it comes out of the 17th century because the text itself does not read to me as a 17th century text it reads much more modern than that, especially the ending refrain, what is the world to me? Where, are, you, are you looking for something like more, more pietistic sentiments that might just, be more, more, have been more common at that period? No, it's just when I look at how the, the, the wording and the text is structured, it seems much more recent in its writing than something that would have come out of the 16th century. Um, considering, I mean, stack it up to something like um, A Mighty Fortress or Beautiful Savior or something else that's written that we consider one of those old German hymns, this just does not come across to me as one of those old German-sounding hymns. One other thing I should note is uh, that while he did do a lot of translation work, he didn't quite come... Uh, up to the, the quantity that Catherine Winkworth did in terms of, of bringing, saving German hymns and bringing them into the English language. Um, but it should also be noted that a lot of the hymns that he did translate, I would classify as maybe niche Missouri Synod hymns. Okay. Well, he, he was uh, right. a member of our Synod and, and worked for it. Um, but they're, the ones that survive and the ones that have been carried forth are, are ones that, that we use and probably no other denominations right. use. And it's too bad because this is a great example it is a of great that. Hymn. Because, it's, because it's a great hymn, but because it's not a Winkworth one that was maybe more widely known or distributed, it, we're probably right. the only ones that sing it. Well, kind of our corner of Lutheranism, uh, uh, maybe the, the, the Wisconsin Synod and some of those other ones have retained it as well because we did share some hymnals right. uh, farther back in our history. The title of the tune kind of gives it away, uh, even though we're un uncertain of the, um, of the composer. In German, it's Was frage ich nach der Welt, which means literally, what do I ask of the world? Um, it gets translated in the hymn as, what is the world to me? But it still has that same set, uh, sentiment. And um, uh, often in these collections, the, the hymns have titles above them, uh, and originally, the title that was above this one was um, uh, Disdain for the World. And those all color it a little bit differently, I right. think. 
Uh, yeah, because I was just thinking about if we take that German text, uh, what do I ask of the world? That is similar to what is the world to me, but it does color it differently because the opening line is, what is the world to me with all its vaunted pleasure? Well, what is the world to me with all its vaunted pleasure? It's, I, you get more of the image of all of this pales in comparison to what Christ has in store for us as we go on into the verse. Whereas to say, what do I have to ask of the world with all its vaunted pleasure? It's kind of looking around and saying, there's nothing here that I want. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it does color it differently. The, um, and then the fact that that question is posed at the end of every stanza too, I think is, is, is interesting. It, it's mm -hmm. at the very beginning of it, but then also every stanza ends in that same way. What is the world to me? Um, and interesting enough, enough, it doesn't have a question mark following it. It has an exclamation mark. So You're it's right. it's 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 not really a question, is it? It's uh, it's um, it's a statement, kind of, of an imperative. Yeah, like what what is this? Yeah, you can just toss it away. Right. Um, and so th this hymn, you, uh, I think, really fits well with this Sunday because it ties both the epistle and the and the other two readings together. Mm -hmm. it, it wraps it all up um, pretty nicely. Of the original eight stanzas, um, our hymnal editors and their wisdom have retained four of the original eight. And, and I didn't go back to compare, but I'm assuming they are the, the best of the four. Let's hope they are the best, or the best of the eight. Um, and I think for today, um, why don't we sing stanzas three and four? Um, four is such a wonderful summary of, of I think, of the whole, whole hymn. And um, three, I think, speaks to the idea of covetousness, which I think is going to be right. you know, of, of, of this world's things that I think you're going to speak to on Sunday. So the tune, um, mm -hmm. is this tune used anywhere else in the hymnal? It is in only one other place. It's, uh, it's an Advent text, um, when all the world was cursed, which is about John the Baptist. Okay. And so you would sing it on the second or third Sunday right. of Advent when we talk about John the Baptist, and, and only those two places in the right. hymnal. Because musically, the third strophe of this hymn has always been intriguing to me with the use of the accidentals in it. For whatever reason, the coloration and the, just the way it feels as it's being sung, I've always found to be very intriguing. And it's always led me to contemplate why that part of the text is paired with that part of the tune especially now that I know that this tune was written for this text, given that it's titled, <laughs> mm -hmm. What is the World to Me? Or What Would I Ask of the World? And I think it highlights that that third line, it, it really um, makes that kind of the high point almost right. of, of each line. Well, it is the highest part of the hymn. Mm -hmm. and, and it's really where the, um, the gospel, the response to the gospel really starts to come through. What, what also makes it um, a very approachable tune, like many hymn tunes that we look at, is um, the first few notes go right through the first, third, and fifth scale steps, except it's in reverse order. Five, three, one, uh, um, uh, through the triad, through the through the chord, the, the the tonic chord, and then a lot of the rest of the tune is stepwise, and it has a very 
predictable progression to it. It's, it's you're, you're not going to get lost. Right. And that makes for a good hymn tune. Yes. So uh, stanzas three and four. The world seeks after wealth, and all that mammon offers, yet never is content. Though gold should fill its coffers, I have a higher good, content with it I'll be. My Jesus is my wealth, what is the world to me? What is the world to me? When Jesus is my treasure, my life, my health, my wealth, my friend, my love, my pleasure, my joy, my crown, my all, my bliss eternally. Once more then I declare, what is the world to me? That doesn't always happen. In stanza three, the first high note is on the word high of higher. I right. mean, it's just, <laughs> you can tell they were, they were paired together. And actually, in that same line, crown happens to be the, the, the high note right there. So, I mean, it's, uh, they can work together in, in a very significant way. Right. Well, let us pray. Oh, Lord, have mercy upon us. Oh, Christ, have mercy upon oh, us. Oh, Lord, have mercy upon us. Our Father, who Lord art in heaven, heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy, thy kingdom come, thy, thy will be done, done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily, daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Blessed Lord, you've caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and take them to heart, that by the patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Bible study podcast. It is our hope that it has helped you grow in faith and appreciation of our Lutheran worship traditions. Speaking of worship, remember that from Memorial Day through Labor Day, our Sunday services are at 8 and 9.30 a.m. and our Monday service remains at 6.30 p.m. God's peace be with you.